0: You'd open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, very end of Luke. This is a a wonderful day of celebration, but it is a day that really, for a Christian, we should be mindful of every day of the year. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the death and the resurrection of our Lord, is the central truth of Christianity. It was God's plan from the beginning of the world. It was part of God's providence to save the world. Puritan Octavius Winslow wrote of Christ and his crucifixion. Little did they dream as they bound the fatal wood upon his shoulder, by whose power that tree was made to grow and from whom the beings who bore Him to death drew their existence, so completely was Jesus bent upon saving sinners by the sacrifice of Himself. He created the tree upon which He was to die, and nurtured from infancy the men who were to nail Him to that accursed wood. This was God's plan. It was a plan that Jesus understood from the beginning He said that he was going to lay his life down. No one was taking it from him. It was not a tragedy. It was the plan. And he was also going to raise himself back up again. So Jesus, truly, the divine second person of the Trinity, was in charge of these events, as was the Father and the Holy Spirit. But what we see in the Gospel accounts is not Jesus' divinity portrayed on the cross, but his humanity, He was a real human. He was a real man. Francis Schaeffer said that if you were at the cross and you you ran your hands down the cross, you would get splinters. The wood was real. Jesus was real. His body was real. His death was real. He really died. He really stopped breathing. His heart stopped beating. After the gruesome beatings with whips and rods... And the the death on the cross, the humiliating death on the cross, stripped naked, bleeding for everyone to see. He died. He breathed his last. The soldiers pierced his side for good measure to ensure that he was dead. They were breaking the legs of the other two on his right and left so that they would die quickly. But they did not break Jesus' legs. Because he was already dead. And by way of introduction, I would remind you that for the enemies of Jesus, they thought this was the high point. The high point of their lives. The death of Jesus. The Pharisees hated Jesus. The Jewish leaders hated Jesus. And they were inspired by their father, the devil, who hated Jesus. Satan and the demons must have rejoiced at his death. But they were blind to these events in their redemptive, historical, their spiritual context. They did not see what was happening. Because if you remember, he died during the Passover. He died as the lambs were being slain for each family. Each family that would take this lamb home. Remembering the Passover that occurred when Israel came out of Egypt as the destroyer went from house to house, looking for the blood over the doorposts. These lambs represented the atonement and the sacrifice of Jesus himself. He died with the lambs, which were being slain for every family in Israel. He died the righteous for the unrighteous to open the way for all mankind. For all who would receive him, who would believe in his name, that they would have the right to become children of God. Indeed, what Satan meant for evil, God had ordained from time eternal for the ultimate good of mankind. The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is the center of our religion. Some Christians would teach, and I say Christians in quotes, would teach that you don't have to really believe that Jesus, the man, died and rose from the dead That's the stuff of fairy tales. This cannot be true. No matter what else you believe in the scriptures, if you don't believe that Jesus died and rose again, this is another religion. It is not Christianity. This is the heart and life of everything we believe. And on these events are based all of our hope and all of our faith. The death and resurrection of the second member of the Trinity are the light and love of God for man. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus hasn't died and risen from the dead, then everything we do is worthless. The preaching of the gospel is worthless, it's in vain. And we are above all people to be pitied. If this is not true, then we all need to go home and never come back to this place again. But it is true. It is true. It's beyond uh, pale that it is true and real and right. So we're going to read Luke 23 just as a starting point. I'm going to actually reference all of the gospel accounts as we look at a few things related to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Luke 23 starting in verse 50. And I'll be reading through 24 verse 49. It's a long passage. Please remain seated, but I will ask you to stand to honor the word of God toward the end. Now there was a man, starting in verse 50. Now, There was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and mother Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stood stooping and looking in, and saw the linen clothes by themselves and went home marveling at what had happened. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you We thank You that Your Word is true and eternal. We thank You that Your your Word is without error. It is trustworthy and faithful because it is the Word of the Holy God. We pray that these words that we have read and other scriptures that we will reference would be used by Your Spirit, that the words of Christ would be spoken would be spoken by these stuttering lips, and that the hearts of your people would receive this word. For your glory, and all by the power of your Holy Spirit, and in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So We're going to talk about the empty grave. We're going to talk about the grave and the death of Christ then we're going to transition to the rising of Christ, the empty grave, the resurrection. And some of the implications we see from an empty grave. We see that Jesus Christ, first of all, produced life-changing differences in people's lives. And this is the first point. Christ changes people. Look in verse 50. There was a man named Joseph from Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. We know from the complimentary accounts about this event in John chapter 19 that there was another man with Joseph of Arimathea. This was the man who met Jesus secretly for fear of the Jews. He was the teacher of Israel. He had a position in Israel responsible for all of the education of the whole nation. That was Nicodemus. They're both part of the Jewish ruling council, both highly respected in Israel. Nicodemus, the teacher in Israel, Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man with great influence, so great an influence that he can go straight to Pilate, the governor, and get what he wanted. And the text tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was a good and righteous man. Not meaning that he was sinless, but he was seeking after the kingdom of God. He was looking for the kingdom of God, it says in the text. Much like Nicodemus, we see that Christ had already done a work in the heart of Joseph of Arimathea. Or was doing his work. And this produced courage in these men. It changed them. In verse 52, we read that Joseph went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. John 19 adds these details, that he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. And he went and asked Pilate that he might take the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So Joseph of Arimathea gets permission from Pilate, the governor of the whole land, To take the body off of the cross. He did it secretly. I believe because he didn't have time for confrontation. This could not remain a secret. The man who took the body off of the cross and put him in his own tomb. This could not remain a secret and for other reasons that we will discuss later. But he didn't have time to confront the Jews at the time. He went straight to Pilate. Straight to the governor by whose authority Christ was crucified and by whose authority Christ's body could be removed and buried. He was in a bit of a time crunch as well. This was the day before the Sabbath. When does the Sabbath begin? Does anyone know? Sunset. Jesus died at 3 p.m. He was on the cross for six hours. Sunset at this time of the year is about 6.37 p.m. He doesn't have much time. Golgotha is maybe a mile from where Pilate lives. So for a a man walking fast, a man in a hurry, he could probably get to Pilate in 15 minutes. Add the time that it takes to get the message to Pilate, to actually see Pilate, to make the request, to run back to the cross, to find someone to help lower the cross, to get the body, to put it in the tomb. He doesn't have much time. This all has to happen before sunset before the beginning of the Sabbath. So there's some tension in the clock that Jewish readers would know instinctively as they read this text. We should feel it as well. Joseph is trying to do something and the clock feels like it's against him. Joseph and Nicodemus in these actions, in their haste to bring the Lord Jesus from the cross, show great courage in their actions. They had been hiding their faith. The Scriptures are clear. They were secretly followers of Jesus, if that's possible. It may be possible for a short time, but not for long. Now they were out there for all the world to see. Children, you remember the the song that you sing probably often. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine. What do you say? Hide it under a bushel? No! I'm going to let it shine. This is what Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are finally doing. They're not hiding the light under the bushel anymore, they're going to let it shine. Isn't it interesting, too, that many of the points of sermons are children's songs? They're the same truths that we learn over and over again throughout our lives. You know, there are many in every church who profess a faith in Christ, but they want it to be a hidden faith. They want it to to hide. Maybe they love the world. Maybe publicly their faith is a scary thing. They don't want the world to notice. They don't want their neighbors to notice. They don't want people they work with to notice that they live differently. Maybe it's a love of pleasure, love of entertainment, sports, beauty, wealth, shopping, indulgence, fill in the blank. In short, it's idolatry. You love something more than you love Christ or you would be shining brightly for him. So I've gently challenged each one of you within the sound of my voice and ask you, are you living like Nicodemus and like Joseph of Arimathea before this moment? Are you in some ways, in small ways, in big ways, hiding your faith from others? Are you hiding in the shadows? Are you trying to be a secret follower of Jesus? either from cowardice or fear or just from a love of yourself and worldliness. This is idolatry and should be stopped. Christian men and women and boys and girls should shine brightly. Nothing should be hidden under a bushel. Today, on this day above all days, if you claim faith in Christ, examine your own hearts To see if you're living a life devoted to your own pleasure and comfort. Or if you're living a life devoted to others and to Christ. Are you living to God and his church? And if you see some dark areas. You need to pray for strength to live like a Christ follower. Openly. Like Nicodemus. Like Joseph of Arimathea. We continue in verse 53. They took... He took down the body and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. We know that he was assisted by Nicodemus. The account in John 19 adds, Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 to 100 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus bound in linen cloths with the spices as the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there are some things about what they did that again, show the radical change that God has worked in each of their hearts. As Jews... You should remember that touching a dead body means uncleanliness. You are unclean, religiously unclean, and unable to worship. Now it was acknowledged that everyone would have to touch a dead body. Eventually, if a child dies, of course, no matter what day it is, you're going to touch that child. If your parents die, you're going to touch your parents. If your brother, your sister dies, etc., But apart from that, you avoid touching dead bodies. Joseph and Nicodemus are touching a man who's not kin. He's not family. He's a condemned man, a crucified man. And these two righteous men knew that they would be unclean for seven days. We think, okay, well, what does that mean? It's Passover. This is the highest of all religious celebrations in all of Judaism. These are not just regular men. These are the leaders of Israel. They're part of the Sanhedrin. This is going to be a public humiliation. Unable to participate at all in the Passover celebration. Probably going to announce their uncleanliness to the priest. The teacher of Israel and this highly influential member of the Sanhedrin, Joseph, would be unclean and unable to participate in the Passover. But there's great irony here, isn't there? Because the Passover points to Jesus and his death on the cross, which had just happened. And why are bodies unclean? Because death is a result of the fall and sin. But Jesus, his body had no sin. This was the only body ever in the history of the world that you could touch and not be unclean at all. That's the irony. Technically, they were not unclean because they touched the body of the sinless Savior of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, perfect and spotless Lamb. Secondly, I think we note the the tender care of these men for the body of Christ. I went to a funeral five, six years ago, and the the woman was up in front. It was an open casket, and there was a group of people in the back of the church, and they were not coming down to the front. They would not say anything to the family who was waiting at front. They just stayed in the back. And I was an elder at the church at the time, and I asked them, aren't you going to go down and say hello to the family and say goodbye to the body of our beloved sister? And they said, no, that body is nothing. Our sister's in heaven. That body is nothing. And I said, that's actually not right. Right. That's a Gnosticism, an old Gnosticism that is rearing its ugly head in our modern day. That this tent that our spirit lives in is really nothing important. The reality is, your body is part of your created being, your body is part of your image bearing. As C.S. Lewis said, God loves bodies. This is why our shorter catechism says the souls of believers are at death made perfect in holiness and immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves until the resurrection. That body is part of you. You can't say that that body that Nicodemus and Joseph was handling was not Jesus. That was Jesus. Not all of Jesus, but that was Jesus. And for this reason, covenant people of God in the Old Testament and the New have always shown honor to the bodies of people after death. Look at the tender care these men show for the body of Christ. They do everything in their power to honor the physical person of our Lord, even in burial. They wrapped His body like a king with a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes. And they put him in the grave cut out of a rock, the grave of a very wealthy man, Joseph himself, fulfilling the scriptures of Isaiah 53, which we read earlier, that they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And if you remember back 33 years before this event, his mother and father were given gifts, weren't they? Gold and frankincense and myrrh. And all of these gifts are royal gifts. And all of these gifts would be with a royal king in his burial. And we see these things, part of the burial of the king of kings. Myrrh was credited at the time because of its rarity of being more valuable by weight than gold itself. This was a burial truly fit for a king, an amazing and extravagant amount of wealth displayed in the burial of Jesus Christ. So Joseph and Nicodemus are examples for all of us, not only only to live brightly for our Lord, to live courageously for our Lord, but to live extravagantly for Jesus Christ. To give everything always to Christ in our hearts. I don't think there's a day goes by where I say in my soul to the Lord, Lord, everything I have is yours. My health is yours. My family, they're yours. Take them today. My heart will be sad, but they are yours. My home is yours. My farm is yours. My dog is yours. Everything I have is yours. Do what you will. Like Job, we should all have this the same idea in our hearts that the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away and blessed be the name of the Lord. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus and honor Him with all that we have in life and in death. As Keith Green wrote in one of his songs, Jesus rose from the dead. Come on, get out of your bed. Get up in the morning. Spend that time with the Lord. These men were changed forever. Their lives would never be the same. Brothers and sisters, our lives should always be lived in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it was to come. For these two, it was still to come. They didn't know he was going to rise. But the narrative changes very quickly. Verse 55, the women saw the tomb where his body was laid. This is an important connector because they are coming back on Sunday. And on the first day of the week, the whole thing changes. At early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They also were going to anoint Jesus' body. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Rather, they were met by angels. Two angels. Matthew adds that there was a great earthquake... For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. So there there were one angel and then two angels. And then again, one angel. His appearance was like lightning. His clothing was as white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. If you remember, the Pharisees wanted Pilate to send guards. So Roman guards were guarding the, the sealed tomb. Now they're like dead men. And the angel said to the women... Would come. Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said, Come and see the place where he lay. So, first there were two angels, and then then apparently there's just one, and he's sitting on the tomb. This always reminds me of after a a football game or a baseball game. the victors in the game would kind of linger on the field and you would see them kind of jump up on the dugout and maybe dangle their feet because you just feel good in the victory. You feel good in the, in the win. And it almost feels a little bit playful that this angel is sitting up on the stone. I don't know of another place in the Bible where you read that an angel is sitting on something like this. He's sitting on the stone. This was an angel who was probably singing to the shepherds 33 years before that. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, goodwill to men. And this same angel is now sitting on this stone in victory. These women approached the tomb probably with some fear knowing that a Roman guard was there. The Roman guards... Were so scared they were like dead men. There was an earthquake as the Lord descended from heaven. As an angel of the Lord, sorry, descended from heaven and rolled back the stone. Well, I think we should first ask why the stone was rolled back. I remember as a child I thought that the stone was rolled away so Jesus could get out. That's not why the stone was rolled away. It was so that people could go in and see where he had laid. There was nothing that could keep Jesus in that tomb. But look at what the angel says to the women. He proclaims the truth first of his identity. He says, This is Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, but that's who was here. Jesus, the one you're looking for, he was here. He was crucified, but he has risen just as he said. Yeah, he said it all through the New Testament, but Jesus is also the author of the Old Testament, and he said it all through his scriptures there as well. He would rise again. What was the sign of Jonah? He would be in the belly of the fish three days and then rise up. Not only does the angel say that this is who he is, this is the identity, it's Jesus. They say... An identifying mark of this person is that he was crucified. This is Jesus who was crucified. This is how we identify the God-man from everyone else in all of human history. He was crucified and he rose again. He points to the redemption he purchased for all his people. This is called substitutionary atonement. In other words, he took your place... If anyone deserved to be on the cross, it's each one of you, all of us. And he substituted himself for us because our sacrifice would not have been sufficient to meet the justice of God. And it's a substitutionary atonement. He atones for our sin. He makes us righteous before a holy God so that we can approach him, so that we can worship him. But it also points, the crucifixion points to the love of the triune God for those he came to save. It also points to the love of the son for the father and the love of the son for his church. It points to his desire to save sinners like you and me. This is the Jesus who was crucified. And finally, the angels say, Jesus, this one who was crucified, he is not here. He's no longer in the tomb. Well, where was He? Mason, where was He? I don't know. Nobody knows, but He wasn't in the tomb. He exploded from that tomb. This was a burst of creative energy not seen since He said, let there be light. This was creation, explosion, and new birth of the Son of God. This points to the divinity of Jesus. But he was risen in a human body, a glorified body. So there's great continuity in our glorified bodies, and we see that in Jesus Christ. They recognized him as Jesus. He spoke and sounded like Jesus. He looked like Jesus. He had scars on his hands and his side like Jesus. He ate. He breathed. This was Jesus Your body is going to be similar to you. I'm going to be able to look at you in eternity and say, Oh, I know you. I know you. But there's also some discontinuity in the glorified body. You see, Jesus seems to be able to, at will, move through spiritual and physical realms in a way that we cannot. He can walk through walls. He can seemingly be in one place and then another. But his glorified body is something glorious to behold. And when the ladies saw his body, they worshipped him. The angel finally said, He has risen. He has risen. Do you know that resurrection in the Greek, it means rise again? That's resurrection. This is what we're celebrating, to rise again. He proclaimed that he would rise again on the third day. And that all of it would happen according to the scriptures. Do you remember when he meets the the two men who were sorrowful, who were walking on this road to Emmaus? And he begins opening the scriptures to them. Everything in the scriptures at that time didn't include the New Testament. So he's opening to them all of this. Everything in the scriptures. And he's showing these two men that all of it was about him. It all pointed to him and his death and his resurrection, his suffering for his people. This is why Paul says that I delivered to you of first importance that Jesus Christ died according to the Scriptures. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. This all happened according to the Scriptures, just as Jesus said. And finally, the angel invites them to come and see where he lay. They said, come and look. Look at the place. It's open. I've rolled the stone away. You can come and see. He's not there. They were to believe with all their hearts that Jesus had risen from the dead. The tomb was indeed empty. He had conquered death. Do you know that in first century Israel and for Centuries after, women were not allowed to be witnesses in court of law. They were considered unreliable. They were not unreliable to our Lord. These are the witnesses, the first witnesses of the resurrected Lord. They had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to his needs. Mark says that Salome was present. She was the wife of Zebedee and the mother of James and John. She watched Jesus crucified. She went with these women. Mary Magdalene was there. The one who had loved much because she had been forgiven much. Jesus had cast seven demons out from her. She was at the cross. She was also with these women. Luke tells us of Joanna. She was one of several women in the Bible who followed Jesus. She was healed of evil spirits and diseases by Jesus. And they accompanied Jesus and the twelve. She was the wife of Chusa, who was Herod's household minister, a wealthy woman. And she helped support the Lord all through his ministry out of her own purse. And of course, Mary of Nazareth, this is the mother of Jesus, she was there. It was prophesied that her heart would break, and certainly for these past three days, her heart was broken. Can you imagine her joy? Can you imagine the joy of all of these ladies as they walked into the tomb and saw the angel? The first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ were these women. And he met them first. This is to show that in God's church, we may have differences in office. I may be a father, I may be a pastor, I may be an elder. But when it comes to the cross of Christ, we are all on the same level. We're all on the same playing field. We are all nothing before the cross of Christ. And it's because of Christ that we can even approach the throne of grace. You would think that Jesus would first appear to the high priest Hey, you you murdered me. Here I am. I'm alive. Now go proclaim to Israel. It's not what he did. That's not what he did. And it reveals something of the humility of our Lord. He chose these humble women who couldn't even testify in a court of law to testify to his resurrection. And so should we who feel like nothing before the world testify confidently to the resurrection of our Lord. Humility is truly a mark of the Christian. There's no such thing as a proud Christian. Christ humbled himself even unto death on a cross. So we also should follow hard after Jesus Christ, remembering these women as they saw the Lord. So let's conclude with the response to the resurrection. In Matthew 28, the angel tells these women, go quickly and tell his disciples. And they ran to tell his disciples. The disciples didn't believe it, but they ran and told them. The first response to the cross, to the risen Lord, is obedience. They were told what to do, and they did it. And we also have been told what to do by the risen King. We're to go and tell. Go and make disciples of all nations. They had work to do, and they did it. We have the authority of Jesus Christ. Specifically, of course, is talking about the authority of the church, to go out and do the work of the church, but it applies to each one of us as well. How will your neighbors hear? How will your family members hear if you do not share with them? You say, well, I've been sharing with this person for decades. Nothing. Okay, well, pray that God gives you an opportunity and a soft heart to have one more opportunity to share the truth of the gospel and never give up praying for those loved ones who have walked away. Our God is a chain breaker and a way maker and He loves impossible situations because nothing is impossible for our Lord. Go and tell. You say, well, my life is my gospel. The way I live is the gospel Well, your life can adorn the gospel. This is true. Your life cannot tell the gospel. That can only be done with your lips. You need to speak. I'm constantly encouraged by evangelists um, who speak boldly for Jesus Christ. The first thing you have to do, though, is open your mouth and talk. Talk about Jesus. And it begins with a deep love for Jesus and a desire to obey Jesus like these women. They ran and talked about what they had seen. There's another response though that we see later in the Gospels and that's complete rejection. The Jewish leaders, the ones who murdered Jesus, the guards came back and told them what had happened. We were there. These angels came. There was an earthquake The stone rolled away. We were terrified. You would think if you heard this account, your heart would be changed. You would be softened. You would be scared. That was not the response of these Jewish leaders. Rather, they continued to hate our Lord and rebel against his word. Spiritual truth is spiritually discerned. This is true. Like Nicodemus, like Joseph of Arimathea, they needed to be born again. To even see the kingdom of God. There is a rejection of God in the heart of man. And only God can change that. But the most important response, I believe, is found in verse 9. Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings, and they came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. This is the proper response of all mankind to Jesus Christ, the King. And this isn't an option among many options. Well, are you going to be Buddhist? Are you going to be Muslim? Are you going to be Christian? I don't know. I like Christianity, I think. No, this is not that kind of thing. This is a demand It's not an option. We don't accept Jesus as Lord. Jesus is Lord. We don't welcome Him into our heart as Savior. He is our Savior. The question is, will you bow your knee and serve Him as Savior and Master and Lord or not? For those who trust in Christ, we have a blessed hope. There's a reason why sunrise services are held next to the cemetery. This is our hope. We see... That someday all of these people who have faith in Christ will be raised again. This confidence is for us and for our own resurrection someday. We look over the ground in the midst of the tombs and the trees. Hear the birds. Someday, a day just like this, Christ is coming through the clouds. This is true. We will all look up and see Him coming. And then everyone who's in the grave will go up. And we'll go up with them. The grave where Jesus was laid was a grave of pain. Our life on this earth is filled with pain. But then it became a grave filled with nothing but linen and sweet-smelling spices. A hundred pounds of it. The sweet aroma of The resurrection of Jesus filling the entire grave. Our lives as well are given a sweet fragrance by the Holy Spirit, even in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. The resurrected Christ is the power of God for our salvation. And he's our light and inspiration in our life and in our faith and in our journey on this earth. In the resurrected Christ, we have hope and peace. For those who are in Christ, this is such a comfort. This is a comfort to our souls, and it should be every day, not just on Easter Sunday. But there are some of you who know that you do not have true faith in Christ. Either you've never heard this message before, or you know you've heard it, but it has never been part of who you are. You need to be reminded that we are all sinners and cannot do anything at all to save ourselves. You should think the offer of the gospel is appealing at this moment because it is a free and full offer of salvation to everyone who believes. You may be lost, but you're not hopelessly lost. No one is so hopelessly lost that he cannot receive the grace of God through faith in Christ Jesus. But we are all sinners deserving of nothing but God's wrath, But He sent a Savior. And this Savior is not just any Savior. It's Jesus Christ, His only Son. He sent His Son to be crucified. To be the spotless Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. To save His own. He's the perfect Savior for sinners, even for the very worst. And He and His Father have promised that anyone who knows themselves to be sinners and puts their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. They will not be rejected. They will not be turned away. So this offer is open to all of you today. Not only the offer, but the duty to submit to Jesus Christ is yours today. You must place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You must forsake your former selfish and worldly and sinful ways. And you must rely on Christ alone. Make him your only treasure. You may not have another day. You may not have another week. You don't know when you will die. Coming from the funeral of a, uh, a family member in Texas just last week, Mary Kay and I noted that if you've been to the funeral of someone who wasn't a Christian or you're not sure if they were a Christian, it's always a little shaky The pastor may try to preach him into heaven. But everyone knows this man or this woman. You know how they lived. You know what they really believed. And you feel sad. And people who aren't saved walk away from those funerals thinking, I never want to die. I never want to be in that position. And yet when you go to the funeral of someone who loved Jesus, we just went to a funeral of a man who loved Jesus with his whole heart. And everyone knew it. And everyone walked away from that funeral saying, I want to die and go with him. I'm ready to go do that. Because the sweetness of being with Jesus so far surpasses anything in this world that you could never, ever not want that. And yet the consequence of rejecting Jesus is so horrible that you could never, ever fathom the eternity of hell and judgment that awaits. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a great hope for the people of God. And it's a message of hope for those who don't know God. And it's a message of welcoming. Jesus Christ, he, he rose from the dead and he still stands and says to all who would hear him, Come all you who are weak and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your mercy and your grace in our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name that you have given us such a Savior, such a wonderful and majestic heritage in Christ, who was victorious over sin and death, who died and rose again, And who will come again with all of his angels in glory to judge both the living and the dead. Lord, we pray that every heart in this room would be touched. That you would do your your work through your Holy Spirit in every life. That you would be glorified by your gospel. Thank you for a son who came. Thank you for a son who died and thank you for a son who rose from the dead for our justification in Jesus.